Hi, thanks for joining us online. We're glad that you've chosen to access this message. It's so encouraging to know that God is using the ministry of Portico Community Church to touch the hearts and lives of people all across the world. If you have a story to share or a prayer request, we would love to hear from you at info at porticocanada.ca. To support our ministry, you can donate online by clicking on the Donate button at the top right of your screen. Once again, we're so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this message from God's Word will deeply impact your life. My name is Amanda, and this is my husband, Rick. He's the campus pastor here. Um, and we tag-teamed last week. We're tag-teaming again this week, and then it's over. <laughs> and then it's over, and she's fired. No. <laughs> over, the course, over the course of this entire series, in all of our campuses, we're going to have a couple different communicators because it's an interview style of the message that we're looking at. How would Jesus describe himself if we, if we interviewed him? So we'll have a few different communicators. We'll drag some of those people from Mississauga out, and we'll, we'll accept them off and on. So I want to ask this morning, it looks like some of you, it's been a little while since you've been in school. Others of you, I can see some of our junior highs and a couple kids in the room. Um, Do you remember doing an assignment where you had to create a coat of arms? So that's where you design an image and there's a motto, you have different symbols, and it defines who you are based on your heritage and what's important to you. Does anybody remember this assignment? A few of you. Okay, that's good because we're going to have a little coat of arms challenge right now. So we're going to play a coat of arms guessing game. So this is the coat of arms. I'll give you a minute to take a peek at it, um, and then I'll give you some hints. It is a local city. So if you think you know what this is the coat of arms for without Googling, (laughs) then go ahead and just yell it out. Um, It's a local city. You'll see there are some rivers and a lake and at the south apparently. end of the city? Toronto. 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 It is Toronto. The T. Yes. The, there's a T in the middle. Who that was going to be I my next over here clue. First. Who got that first? Manier got it. All right, Manier. You got Toronto. No, the six. That's new, apparently. <laughs> so this one, we've got some Canadian animals up there. Winterfest. <laughs> We've got the maple leaves in the middle. This one's not a city. Um, and I'm, I'm going to translate the Latin at the bottom for you. That's loyal it. she began, loyal she remains. That's this impressive. I, I had to Amanda. Google it. <laughs> that, is, that is not my coat of arms, no. Queens. It is a, it's not a city. This one is for a province. Good one, though. Good guess, though. That we're in right now. Yeah, it's not Manitoba. It's close to Manitoba. It's just a little Wrong east side of Manitoba. Manitoba. Hey! hey. <laughs> Apparently, we don't know our coat of arms very well. Okay, the next one. Two more. This one's a fun one. <laughs> nah, that didn't even take any guys. There you go. Yeah, none of it. This one's not Canadian. That'll be your first hint, okay? It is in Africa. It is, it, it is close to South Africa. It it's is in South Africa. It is in the southern part of Africa. Yes. Not Namibia. No. It, yes. Botswana. Botswana. Right. Very good. Julia yes. figured that one out. Yes. So we've, we've got the, the dancing zebras um, that are part of their uh, their wildlife, and uh, the cogs are representing their industry. So th- here's a couple of examples for you. You know, maybe this uh, will inspire you. 
um, because if you take a peek in your bulletin, there is a little activity that you can, if you're a, an artistic person or a doodler, then feel free to um, listen with one ear and, and doodle away about your own car coat of arms. Um, and if you're not a doodler and you, and you don't want to, um, to do the artistic piece, then just think about how you would define yourself or what symbols would be on your coat of arms. Are there significant moments from your history? Are there some of your principles or your values or other aspects of your identity um, that you would include on your own coat of arms? And it would be interesting to think back to what you did in grade three when you did that assignment mm -hmm. and compare how it's different now. So uh, as Rick mentioned, we're in a series called Searching for Jesus, and we're examining the words that Jesus used himself to define who he was, and then we're, and, and then we're trying to connect that back to 2017 and how that relates to us. So last week we looked at the bread of life, and we got to smell the bread, and then we got to taste the bread afterwards, and if my mouth is it, watering. You missed, you missed a good week. <laughs> <laughs> you can never miss a week. Um, and the bottom line of that was that... Um, the bread of life is the only thing that should fill us, is Jesus. So this week we're going to move on to the second statement, which is found in John chapter 8, verse 12, and which says, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So far, Jesus has a picture of a, a piece of bread and a light bulb on his coat of arms. <laughs> So as we learned last week, sometimes the stories that we're reading in the Bible have really significant historical and geographical current events and, and contextual cues that we're missing out on as we read. So give us the context of this statement. Sure. We, for this one, we need to back up an entire chapter. So if you have your, we're going to bump through John's chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9. So if you want to be following along, make sure you have your Bible open or for your app, just make sure you're able to scroll through. We need to go back to John chapter 7, verses 37, to see what the context of this statement was. And here's what it says, John 7, 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Now the festival he's referring to here, Israel was celebra celebrating the festival of booths or the festival of tabernacles, which doesn't mean a lot to us, so we have to understand a little bit more about it. It's a week-long celebration that's held in the fall, and it's commemorating the memory of when the Jews were in the wilderness. And when they were in the wilderness, they still wanted to worship God, so they built a tabernacle where God's spirit would come and, and be housed. And they themselves lived in kind of shanty dwellings that they had made from from whatever they could pick up. So during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would build grass huts on their properties and live in those huts. They, or so, sometimes they would just have meals in those little grass houses they would make at the back of their property. Sometimes they would sleep in them as well. But for this entire week, they're building these, they're staying in them, and they're remembering when God's Spirit came and dwelled among them. It's important to know this. They were celebrating how God was faithful to them, even when they didn't have a home, when they were just figuring out who God was, God's presence, and came right in and amongst them. So that's what all their minds were thinking about. God comes and lives with us. So now, now they're, they've, they've, got their, they've got their own uh, cities, and they've got their country, and they've, they've built this wonderful, beautiful temple. And during this week-long ceremony, they would go and they would light the menorah. You've seen Jewish menorah before, right? I think we've got a picture of it. So it's uh, eight candles or seven candles, depending on... Um, the structure of it. But then 
inside the temple during the, the festival of, uh, or the Feast of Tabernacles, there were four 75-foot gold menorahs that were lit over the course of the week. Now imagine that. You've got, you've got either 56 or, no, four times seven is uh, 28, or you've got, you've got 28, or you've got uh, 32 75-foot candles. And the wicks of these candles were made from the priest's robes that they had worn over the course of the last year, and they fashioned them in, into wicks, and it's burning so bright. In fact, it was because it says it was on the last day, every candle would have been lit, and that presence was, that light was reminding them that God's presence came down and met them in the wilderness, now continues to meet them as they're there in Jerusalem. And Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's teaching them, and he's saying um, that God's presence might look a little bit different than you think it looks. So they're all thinking about, no, God's been faithful to us for thousands of years to our father Moses, and he's beginning to challenge that. So he's becoming a little bit antagonistic, stretching especially the teachers and the leaders to a place where they didn't want to go yet. And they're in fact convinced that Jesus is a heretic and he's leading people off into, just like we would say, that's some cult leader, that's some weirdo. We don't want people to listen to that teacher. That's what they're thinking about Jesus. And we get to the end of chapter seven and there's a conversation amongst the Pharisees questioning, maybe even some of our teachers are being fooled by this guy. And we need to find a way to prove to everybody that Jesus is a liar and he doesn't believe in what, they didn't have the Bible, they had the law. So they had the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, and they, so they're following a lot. We need to prove to everybody how, how much he goes directly against what God teaches. So overnight, they go, and they find two people, not married, that are sleeping together. And the law is very, very clear. If, if people are in the sin of adultery, you're to stone them. Now, this is, this is their chance to see, will Jesus adhere to what the law said, and will he honor God? So they bring her right outside where the temple is. And they're saying, look, God's presence is there. We can see it. It's bright. It's huge. And you're saying you're honoring God's law. Are you going to do what the law said that you're supposed to do? So they look at Jesus. And then if you read at the beginning, this is the beginning of John chapter 8. It says he begins to write on the dust in the ground. Now we don't have any indication of exactly what he wrote. But something that he wrote in the dust, and he said, he's without sin, cast the first stone. But something that he wrote triggered the Pharisees so much that they had killed people before for this sin. They expected Jesus to do the same thing. They were bloodthirsty there with rocks ready to stone. Not, they both were. They only had brought the lady there, which, again, which was actually against the law, what it should have said. They both should have been there. But something that he wrote made them question the law themselves and say, oh my goodness, this Jesus might have something here. Now, again, we need to understand the feast. This is why we need John chapter 7, John chapter 8, and John chapter 9 to understand what he's going to call himself. But during this feast, at all eight days, there would have been water brought up from the Pool of Siloam. The Pool of Siloam is just uh, about a five-minute walk from where, the, from where the temple is, and we've got a picture of it here. And actually, if you want to go see this place, we have got a tour going to Israel in October. I think it's October 29th to early November excuse me, coming up next year, uh, Jeff Feuders, he was the one who, who started our campus, been a pastor at Portugal for a number of years, is now working with First Century Foundations. He's going to lead a trip. Now, if you're inter interested in going on this trip, we'll have some information for you available at the end of next week's service, but it's going to be an amazing time to go and experience these places. They had water that was brought from this pool, and it was brought into the temple for all 
seven days of the festival, and it was like holy water that was there, and this was supposed to be the water that was, that was giving life. And Jesus had just declared, remember John 7, 37, that anyone who wanted living water should not come to the temple, but should come to who Jesus was. So he's, he's first off, he's, he's taking on the living water that was, that was being brought. And many scholars believe this. What if he wrote Jeremiah 17, 13? All he had, would have had to write was Jeremiah 17, 13, in the dust on the temple steps. Here's what Jeremiah 17, 13 says. Those who turn away from you, He's now speaking to the Pharisees. Will be written in the dust. He's writing in the dust. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. So they're there in the temple with holy water they thought they brought from the ground. And Jesus says, no, I'm the living water. And then, he sa- and then they're looking at him to kill this lady. And he says, your name will be written in the dust because you've forsaken the Lord who is the actual spring of living water. And all of a sudden, these guys who had killed so many before are totally shamed and walk away, going against what they believe would have been a righteous killing. They're standing outside the temple with these four 75-foot menorahs burning so bright. They said that the light was so bright that as the sun would come up, the temple would be brighter. That's what the stories would have said. And, and, And they knew that that first menorah, the first time in the tabernacle, They didn't even have to light it on fire. God's presence came down in fire and lit it. They knew that it meant God's presence. And it's in this context that Jesus says, and you know what, guys? I'm the light of the world. It's a very intense scene that we've (laughs) just stepped into. Uh, And in church, we have a lot of imagery and stories and songs about light. Uh, So we're going to take a little break from the intensity. And and let's see uh, if you remember any of these songs. So I'm going to sing a line, and then you're going to sing back to me. She not only wants to preach, she now wants to worship lead. So I guess Heather and I will be on the street next week. I will be. And I have not come to jam session for this, so. (laughs) Okay, so here we go. This little light of mine. Very good, very good. Okay, now this one is even, like, going way further back. I've got oil in my lamp. Oh, very good. Very good. Okay. That was great. I think we all could come to jam session. Uh, And this morning we sang, Light of the World, You Stepped Down into Darkness. Um, So, again, these are happy songs. They put smiles on our faces. They warm our hearts. We have this image of light, which is a very different scene from angry Pharisees manipulating Jesus, trying to have somebody stoned, um, Jesus shaming the Pharisees. I'm really not seeing a lot of light in this picture. Um, So give us a little more reason about why this was the specific time and place that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Sure. So for the second straight time, we're seeing Jesus pick up on an analogy that was not only relevant to the people because it meant something in their context, it also was very relevant because of what was going on around them. Stories, stories are always so much more significant to us when we can relay it to something right in, in our world that's happening, something that we can see. And one of the difficulties that we have as a church or as a Christ follower today is we're trying to relate a 2,000-year-old analogy to shepherds and tax collectors to what we experience today. So it's important to recognize that when Jesus was saying, I'm like the, I'm the bread of life, I'm like this bread that you smell, I'm the light of the world, I'm like this light that you've been looking to for years and years as God's presence. So it was culturally relevant at the time. But more than that, there was an eternal truth to it as well that we can still put into our lives today. 
So Isaiah, let's, we're going to have to go back to the Old Testament. Isaiah was a prophet. He spoke to God's word to the Jews, and, and he, he had messages that were full of prophesying about the Messiah that was going to come. There was God set, we were separated from God because of sin, and then there was us, so there were these sin offerings. But he was promising there was a time that Messiah would come and free Israel and make Israel great and, and bring God to the throne again. And here's how Isaiah said we would recognize Jesus. Let's go to Isaiah 9 and 2. It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And we, we read this one at Christmas a lot because it, they've seen a great light. And we talk about the star in the sky that the wise men followed and the angels where, when the shepherds saw the great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. I'm going to read a couple more for you. What Isaiah said would be the signs that we would recognize the Savior or the Messiah. 60 verse 3. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind. So giving light to people who couldn't even see light. And unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. So these are distinct declarations that the Messiah would bring light and would open eyes. So as everyone is standing there in the temple, amazed by the light of the menorahs, Jesus chooses to say, I'm the light of the world, because the Pharisees immediately, when he says, I'm light of the world, and anyone who had studied the law would have known he's saying he's the Messiah. He's not just saying that he's, he's a teacher. He's saying, I'm the Messiah, because Isaiah told you when the Messiah comes, I will bring light. Now, John the Baptist, this is, this is Jesus' cousin, who also knew the scriptures inside and out. John was born the same time as Jesus was born. And in the same way that Jesus' mother had a prophecy given to her about how she was going to conceive and it was going to be a virgin birth, John's mother, Elizabeth, had the same prophecy, not that it was a virgin birth, but that in her old age that she would, she would conceive and she would have a son. And he, this is John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. And he devoted his life to telling people that the Messiah was was so close and look around and see the signs of the Messiah. And so John gave up everything that he could have lived his life for, for this one purpose. And at this time, John's in jail and he's going to be executed eventually. And John sends people to ask Jesus. He wanted to know for sure, are you the Messiah? Because I gave everything up and I want to know before I die, does my life have purpose or has this all been wasted? And here's, Jesus doesn't say yes. Here's how Jesus responds to John in Matthew eleven five. He said, are you the Messiah? And he goes, tell John this. The blind receive sight. This goes right back to Isaiah. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. He said, I'm the light. And by saying I'm the light, he's saying I'm the Messiah. So Jesus takes what Isaiah made as a declaration, and he, he brings it to affirmation and saying, I'm trying to reassure you, John, it's all been worth it. And if Jesus' words weren't even enough, we have to flip ahead a chapter into John, um, into John 8, uh, from John 8 and going into John 9, and see that it goes from uh, to declaration to affirmation. We're going to see a confirmation that he was the light of the world. So if we go back to uh, the end of chapter John, or at the end of chapter 8 in John, <clears throat> it ends with Jesus leaving the temple, and he's met by another crowd. And in this crowd, there is a blind man, and this this man had been born blind. So there was a common perception then that if a person was born with a disability, it was a direct punishment from God because of somebody's sin. So the disciples now hear that there's this man who's been born blind, and they're really curious to see how is Jesus going to react. 
they're thinking this is, you know, the message that Jesus has been giving them has been incongruent with what their thinking has been. And the teaching is demonstrating how God's been dealing with sin. So let's not forget what had happened earlier in John where the disciples had seen Jesus not follow the law and not stone the woman that was found uh, in adultery. And finally, um, the disciples would have also known that historical context of the prophecy that the Messiah would come and blind people would start to see again. So they're very interested to see what's going to happen. So they ask him about the blind man, and we're going to read in John chapter 9, verses 2 to 3. The disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man, this man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So we go from declaration from Isaiah to affirmation by Jesus. No, it's true. I'm God's son. And then confirmation. You want to you see it proved? Fine, I'll do the miracle so that everybody can see it's not just going to be words, that I am the Savior. Jesus chose a very specific reference that carried through thousands of years from Old Testament to what we're reading here that was life being lived out that would eventually become the New Testament so that anyone who would study the Bible and look back on it from our perspective today could say, no, what he was doing was saying, I am God's son. That's why he called himself light and he proved it with this miracle. It's amazing to see how one story is interwoven all throughout the Bible. And there's many of us that would miss um, the complexity and the depth of this if we didn't have the opportunity to take a step back and get this perspective. And if we're not able to take into account the, all of that history and, and context that was going on um, as well. So as much as this healing of the blind man was confirmation of Jesus as the Messiah, we know that there's a lot of imagery used in the New Testament talking about how Christ followers are the light as well. So this is now applying to us in 2017. So we're going to look at another part of the Bible that talks about how light is found. So Matthew 5, uh, verses 14. Jesus was talking to a group of people who had started to believe in him, and, they said, and he said to them, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. So Jesus uses the same words to describe us as he described himself. Now, I am not putting us or myself in the same category as God. He did it. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you can help us understand uh, why he would call himself the light of the world and then turn around and call us, Christ followers, the same thing. So what you're getting at here is where we're going to end every one of these messages in this, in, this sermon, search, in this series, Searching for Jesus, and saying what's the appropriate response for us knowing all of this. And again, Jesus uses the culturally relevant example to communicate eternal truth. Very specifically, when he said city on a hill, he's speaking of a city, and we've got a picture, and this is from one of First Century Foundation's last trips, about a city called uh, Tispat. And if I butchered that name, that we should not be shocked that I butchered a Jewish name. But it's, it's a city that's on very top, uh, the very top of the hill. It's actually 900 meters above sea level. It's now called Safid. And it's what it is rumored. I did better with that one, didn't I? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's rumored to be the place where Noah's Ark stopped. And when the floods came out, this is the highest point in, in or one of the highest points in all, of, in all of Israel and all of the Middle East. It's almost as high as where, as where we find Lake Louise in Canada out in the Rockies. 
It was a town that people knew about because it was like a resort. It was a holiday place. The weather was a little bit different. You could experience really beautiful, even more beautiful temperatures during the summer, get a little colder. I'm not sure they were doing skiing back at that point, but <laughs> there, is, uh, there is some snow that'll uh, fall up there in the, in the winter. And Jesus refers to, you're like the city on the hill. Because everybody knows the city on a hill. Why? It stands out as the city that's on the hill. Everything else is down in the lower parts of the mountain. That's the thing that defines it. So he says, you're the light of the world, and you should stand out for having light the same way that that city stands out for being way higher. And everybody, like, that city stands out, right? You can see it. There's nothing, nothing, nothing. Ah, city. We should stand out for there's light in us. We should be that um, it should be that clear to other people. Now, you know yourselves. I know myself. And I know that oftentimes, if people were going to say, what defines Rick? Or if you said, what defines you? You've got your little coat of arms you may have been drawing, and we were all able to define Nunavut because we saw the narwhal, and we, saw, we, we, we knew these things, right? If people were to define you, would they say, it's the light of God that defines that person? There's... I know that that person's a Christ follower because there's so much light and godliness and holiness coming out of them. I'm not sure how many of us would be able to go around the room and say, yep, that's me. We may be defined by something very different. And whether we self-define or whether other people define it for us, we know that there's a lot of good, but there's a lot of bad that comes out of us as well. And many times we could say, there's no light that I have to share with the world around me because there's actually a lot of darkness that comes out. Do you know how the moon works? Let me know why the moon is bright. You know that there's no light. And, and some of you are like, yeah, I, I, I know where this analogy is going. Just wait for me, okay? I'll, I'll get there. <laughs> there's, the moon has no light in and of itself. And during the course of a month, you will see these shapes in the sky, right? The moon doesn't change. The moon is orbiting around the sun with us. And sometimes we can see a bright shining moon and it's low and it's like wow there's a giant orange ball in the sky and i see that light and other times we look up and we don't see anything at all and the diff the only difference is as the as the earth and the tiny little moon goes around the sun however much of the sun the sunlight directly hits the moon is as much moon as we see in our sky meaning this if there's full sunlight on the moon you see a full bright shining moon why because the moon reflects the light if there's no sunlight hitting the moon, you don't see anything because the moon doesn't produce any light in and of itself. The moon is dark. Now talk about an analogy. We talk about sun and sun all the time, S-U-N, S-O-N. If we spend time in the light, we have light that we can reflect. And any time that we don't spend time in the light of God's presence, and any time we don't spend thinking, I don't have any light to give, but what do I have to give? The ability to reflect God's presence in me. We have something to share that the world can see. Now, this isn't just my analogy. I'm going to bring you to the Bible to see. I wasn't going for a stretch here. 2 Corinthians 3 and 18 says this. So all of us that have had the veil removed, that veil is speaking of knowing Christ, can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. The key words there, when we see, we reflect God's glory, just like the same way that the moon reflects the sun's light coming in on it. 
And this goes back to uh, the story of Moses when there was a reflection of glory that literally happened. So Exodus 34, Moses is up on the mountains, and he's receiving the Ten Commandments. He was so close to God at that time that his face started to shine and reflect that glory. So much so that when he returned back down to the city, the people had asked him to put a veil over his face because it hurt them to see this glow or this reflection of glory. And we know, well, I'm not going to say we know. Who knows the mission of the church that you're attending? Starts with a helping. There you go. If you're visiting, I'm going to interpret that for you. <laughs> Hip fuck whoop tig is the acronym we use. <laughs> Helping people find their way back to God. Hip fuck whoop tig. It's catchy, right? No. I want you to say it lots of times, lots of Sundays, because I need you to know it's the only reason why we do what we do. I, we don't. We don't need to put on another service. We don't need. We want people to recognize that when there's darkness inside of them, when there's heaviness on them, there's a light that can shine on them and change the way that they experience life. We want people to know that there's a hope beyond this world, that there's a God who crafted a plan from 6,000 years ago and told prophets Isaiah and told prophets Joel and said, I'm going to send my son, I'm going to send my spirit. And then Jesus came and he did what he said he was going to do. And it continues on to this day. We exist so that people who don't know who God is will someday find that he loves them. In fact, there are people in this community here today, if you're visiting with us, that months ago, years ago, they had no idea. I didn't come to Christ till I was into, into my middle teenage years. I thought it was baloney. And then all of a sudden I said, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to see if God's real. And none of us is smart enough to convince another person to know Christ with a good argument. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. We can't argue someone. We can make a good argument, but they're not going to change based on a good argument. Because you know what? There's a lot of things that are left to faith and say, you just have to believe that God came down and was a human being and he was a full human being but he was fully God that doesn't make sense you can't argue somebody into Christ there is no church program and no service and no we say you know what on Sundays we try and craft the right songs we got to pick the right things there is nothing that we can do that makes anybody believe there are better musicians and there are better programs and they aren't life-changing the only thing that we have that changes lives and helps people find their way back to God is reflecting the light that comes down and we share it with the world. And how do we do that? We spend time with the Son. If you go back to John 1, John chapter 1, and we said we're going to spend some time studying John as Jesus was revealing who he is. Jesus was John 1, 5, the light that shines in the darkness. John 1, 9, he was the true light that gives light to everyone coming into the world. And the thing of value that we hold in this world, the only thing, purpose that you and I can have that actually makes a difference beyond this week or this month or even this year, the only purpose is the light that Christ lights in us, and it's the light that we reflect. Man, it's going to light a candle. And there's this quote, it's from a Roman Catholic um, father, he's out of California, lived um, in the early, early 1900s, and he said this, I love this quote, a candle loses nothing by lighting another candle. So the light that Amanda just lit, it's going to hold. 
Yeah, look at that. That was a miracle right there. <laughs> the light, that, that light. So now Amanda has this candle. She's the candle. The light is something she can't possess. And when she gives it away, the wonderful thing about a light is, is that you don't lose anything. That candle loses nothing. That light still remains the same. Why? Because the candle doesn't generate the light. The light gives in. And that, this candle can go and light 12,000 more candles. And none of us lose anything. Why? Because it's not our light. You don't have to give away anything of yourself. All you have to give is the light that's been given to you. And we have that ability. When, when is the last time, though, that you actively tried to pass on the light, the flame, that Christ has given to you freely. Canadian culture is not favorable to sharing faith. We know this, right? We know that attacking somebody and trying to persuasively convince them to follow the same faith that you believe, that's offensive in our culture. We don't do that very often. So here's the good news. You're not asked to do that. <laughs> You're asked to pass on love. You're asked, the light that, got, that Jesus came into the world he passed on love to the lady who deserved to be stoned by the law and said, did anyone condemn you? Neither do I. So go and sin no more. He passed on love. He passed from moment to moment, wherever he met, the love that says, honor God with your life and know that there's no guilt for anyone that wants to live that way. He saved that lady's life. He healed the blind guy. He cared for the sick. They changed. Why did they change what they believed? Because he passed on love first, not because he argued with them. And since the beginning of time, God has been good and God has cared for people because God was love. We see that in John. But people needed to see a practical example of a God who forgives and doesn't hold grudges and doesn't belittle people. He needed, people needed to see that there was a God that knew about our physical needs and would heal them and wasn't, wasn't uh, unknowledgeable about them. He needed, we needed somebody who would see that there's a God that sacrificially puts the needs that we had, the atonement for sin, above the needs that God had, wanting to stay united in heaven in perfection. Let me ask you again, when is the last time you actively tried to share the flame that you have that God's given you with anyone in the community around you? What are you regularly demonstrating? Where are you regularly demonstrating that you're light? that you're a city on a hill so that you stand out as different and everybody should know. Why? Because there's the light of Christ coming through you. MIT did a study and in darkness, an unobstructed candle, not in fog, <laughs> not with light pollution, but you hold this candle up in a dark place, you can see this sucker from 2.7 kilometers away, MIT says. I trust them. <laughs> we live in a world that has darkness around us. We don't have to look far or hard. We can even look right within ourselves and see some darkness to know that there's, there's a place that needs light. There are all kinds of people 2.7 kilometers around your work or in your classroom, in your family, on your street. And all they need to know that there's a light that's burning inside of you. All they need to see is that you spend time with the sun so that you can reflect it to a dark world. We're going to spend a few moments responding in worship and we're going to sing about how awesome is God and he, he reigns. But I want to give you a chance to commit to living a life of worship that reflects 
God's presence to those around you. One of the coolest stories that I can remember from my high school days, where are our high school students? We have a couple of high school students back there, our, our middle school students. I didn't, I didn't come to faith. Guys, I didn't come to faith until I was in, uh, until I was in grade 11. And I remember learning all about this, and I was supposed to be a Christian at school. And I was at some service, and they said, you should bring a Bible to school. And I thought, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Why? I'm going to get beat up, and I don't want to bring a Bible. I don't need a Bible at school. Why am I going to do it? But if they're telling me to do it, I'm going to do it. So I brought my Bible to school, and I got made fun of. And they <laughs> took my Bible, and they laughed at me. And I thought, oh, geez, this is not going to be good. And then I remember it was, it was picture day for, for school. Like I had, I'd come to faith in the late spring, and this was the next fall. And, it was, and then it was picture day. And they had these Christian T-shirts that you, you, you could buy. Anybody grow up was a Christian in the early 90s? Yeah, they had these Christian T-shirt things. And it had scriptures on it. And I remember in a service on a Sunday, and God saying, you're supposed to wear that T-shirt. <laughs> I had worn, like, my Leaf jersey the last three years, and now I'm supposed to wear this supposed to identify as a Christ follower in the yearbook? A guy that just is trying to figure this out? God, that's a stupid idea. I'm going to get made fun of again and again. And so I did it. I don't think I wore that Christian t-shirt the whole rest of the year, but I wore it on picture day. And now even as we look back at my high school yearbooks, there it is. Without God, it's impossible. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And I'm doing this in high school, guys. So imagine yourselves now, right? Imagine the, the, how much you get made fun of. And I, I remember we started, I said, we're supposed to start a Christian group. I'm like, we don't, I want, just want to have lunch. I, just, I, want to do a, I want to do a Christian group in the school. And so we met together and, and there was one guy that played a guitar poorly and we would sing songs poorly. And when we left high school, I did that Christian t-shirt thing for my last three years of high school because it was grade 11, 12 in OAC. You remember that? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but we, when I left high school, there was 50 students meeting in this little in the music room with a full-on worship time, and I was not the coolest kid in school. I can tell you that much. But I remember the girl that I was passing the leadership off of to lead this high school group, and she said, "Rick, here's what I respect about you." And, and they said, "When she goes, when I walk by the hallway, they they go, there's Lindsay, and I think she goes to that Christian group. I'm not sure. And when you walk by, they go." there's that Christian guy. I think his name might be Rick. <laughs> and I was at, it was at that, that sticks with me because I go, I work very hard to be known for a lot of different things. But how often do I go, the only thing I want to be known for is the light of God that's in me. As we sing this song, would you make a commitment to say, I just want to reflect God's light wherever I go, whatever it costs me, whatever I am. I want to pray for you. Lord, thank you for this church and thank you again for a moment just to think and reflect upon who you are in our lives and Lord I pray that anyone this morning who is considering their faith and considering do they want to honor you or do they want to find out who you are do they, can they live for you in the name of Jesus I pray Holy Spirit just in the quietness in their heart would you remind them that you love them and that you're there and that it's worth it and that it's nothing that they do on their own, but it's a gift from you. And Lord, as we make a commitment in a few moments, would you give us specific places we can go and people we can do and think ways that we can reflect your light so that we would make your name great and your presence known in this community. 
so that people would find their way back to God. Thank you, Jesus.